Hi everyone and welcome to this latest instalment of our Brexit and Beyond podcast and I'm delighted today to welcome two colleagues and friends to talk about the book of the year. Rob Ford and Paula Surridge have finished what seems like a mammoth task of putting together the new Nuffield general election book on the election of 2019. So welcome both of you. Hi. There's almost too much to talk about here but let's what I want to do is is in in a sense talk about what the book says about the campaign and the election first and then end up with some more general reflections on what it was like writing this thing and so on. So I suppose the first thing is I was brought up to think that campaigns don't matter and then 2017 happened. What lessons can we learn about campaigns from 2019? Well, they they certainly matter in terms of informing what parties do because the central operating principle of both 2019 campaigns was how the parties digested and understood the 2017 campaigns. So basically everything that was being done in CCHQ was don't repeat the mistakes of 2017, often using rather more industrial language uh, regarding the 2017 situation. Whereas the operating principle explicitly in Labour, and this is indeed how one senior advisor described it to us, it was 2017 plus plus. So the idea was 2017 was a dream campaign. All they had to do was repeat the very effective decisions of 2017 and and the the thing would take off again so both campaigns were basically reactions to the previous campaign so even if most campaigns don't matter they still matter in terms of how the parties behave because the parties believe that they can learn lessons from from what's been done before so weirdly in a sense both campaigns were kind of expecting a 2017 style volatility and to add to the paradox perhaps one of the reasons we didn't get 2017 style volatility is precisely because both parties were going in planning for it. I think it's worth adding to that as well, the kind of irony that the Conservative campaign learned lessons as if they'd lost in 2017, where, whereas yeah. Labour behaved as if they'd won. Yeah. There's a real irony in that. And is there a sense in which Labour learned the wrong lessons then and the Tories learned the right lessons? I mean, there's a lot being made of the fact that Labour went on the offensive and poured resources into seats that they weren't ever going to win. With, and ignored seats that they were in danger of losing. I mean, and that, that's one way of thinking about it. I mean, the other thing I think it's important to emphasise at this point, though, is that there's a really big fundamental difference between the two campaigns in terms of organisation and structure. Labour were at war with themselves in 2019. So to say that Labour as a unitary entity learned lessons or didn't learn lessons would be to misunderstand the nature of the campaign. Everyone was arguing with everyone else. So in a sense, there wasn't a unified or organised campaign at all, whereas that was rather different from 2017, when although the leadership team was was at odds with the party bureaucracy, the leadership team itself was united. This time they were completely disunited, whereas the Conservatives, in a sense, they learnt the right organisational lesson because they were at war with themselves in 2017 in a similar Mm. way to Labour in 2019, and they were from day one committed to avoiding that kind of internal conflict and one thing we, we draw attention to in the book that's that's often overlooked given his kind of Rasputin-like status in the, the Westminster lobby is that Dominic Cummings was early on basically the, the campaign chief that the Conservatives brought in Isaac Levido, so Cros- Crosby Texter protege, uh, Linton Crosby protege. He basically said, well, I want full control of everything because I don't want uh, a mistake uh, like 2017 when it wasn't clear who's making the decisions. He said to Cummings, you've got to take a step back. You're not going to have day-to-day decision-making powers in this. And Cummings was fine with that. 
and went along with that and stuck to that. So his image is a kind of permanent disruptor. That wasn't the experience in 2019. And I suspect one reason that was true is because everyone in the room knew how badly it had gone in 2017. Whereas in Labour, basically everyone who thought they could stick their oar in was constantly sticking their oar in, which produced chaos. And is it, I mean, in terms of sort of electoral strategy, is it true to say that Boris Johnson finished off what Theresa May had started? I think there's certainly an element of that. You can certainly see the the kind of weaknesses in the Labour vote in, in the Red Wall appearing in 2017. So certainly some of those some of those bricks were were worn away or kicked out already. So it was easier to do that in 2019. So definitely definitely a continuation of that trend, although the extent to which Johnson himself was more of a draw, so kind of supercharged that process, I think is also something that has to be taken into account. Yeah, well, what's, what's interesting about that from the Labour perspective is that there were quite a few people in the Labour Party who saw that vulnerability coming from early on, but responding to it was constantly derailed by factional and ideological issues. So Mm. on the one hand, we need to defend our red wall seats was seen through the lens of, oh, that's what all the people who hate Corbyn uh, and work in Southside said in 2017. They they just want us to lose. They don't want a winning strategy. Uh, Mm. And then there was also the ideological argument about Brexit, which really split even the core Corbyn team down the middle. So it was always seen in terms of, well, this is actually a shadow argument for Labour endorsing Brexit and, you know, shelving a people's vote. Um, Whereas the argument that Remain side would make uh, and continue to make is in in the world where Labour had gone like full fat, you know, we're going to do a soft Brexit, um, we're, we're yeah. not going to give you a second referendum, then what we saw in sort of summer 2019 would have played out in the 2019 general election and that would have been even worse for Labour. And of course, we can never know whether that would have happened or not. What we do know from the results is Labour lost roughly equal numbers of voters on both its leave and remain flank. Yeah. So if the desire was to triangulate, they succeeded. The problem was that it was a triangulation that involved sinking with two big holes in the ship on each side. Is it then fair to say that 2019 was the Brexit election that 2017 never really was? Yeah, I think so, in some in some senses. It's not a simple yes-no question. I know Rob's spoken before about how we kind of get the elections we expect sort of slightly out of sync with each other. And, and yeah, in, in some senses, 2019 was the election that everybody expected 2017 to be. So we're kind of, and 2017 was the election that everybody expected 2015 to be. So maybe we're now caught in this kind of, in this kind of strange time warp because we had because somebody kind of messed it up by having an election when there wasn't supposed to be one. It does, it certainly, the data suggests that Brexit was a bigger factor in 2019, that the the realignment along those lines was stronger. And I think the other thing that really happened in 2019, in 2017, Labour pulled off this really clever trick of convincing Leave voters they were for Leave and Remain voters they were for Remain. By 2019, they'd managed to get to the opposite and convinced Mm. Leave voters they were for Remain and Remain voters they were for Leave. And that then, of course, meant that lots of those voters on both sides moved to be more aligned with their Brexit position. And they didn't manage to pull off that trick two elections in a row. I mean, one of of the mysteries around the election, I suppose, was was that we had one at all. And I know Phil Cowley's written about this, and I think he wrote that section in in the book. Was it always a foregone conclusion that Boris Johnson was going to get an election that he looked like he was going to win on his own terms? I mean, could it have spun out differently? I think Phil has a nice line of the the dangers, uh, uh, you know, seeing things through the lens of the result. You know, that in poker, you shouldn't, resulting, I think they call it in poker, that, you you know, you can play a good hand badly. It doesn't mean that you played the hand wrongly, um, but it might look that way because of what happened 
happened in the end. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of resulting in politics always, and a lot of resulting particularly taking the form of if if the people in that other party that I don't like had done the sensible thing, then none of this would have happened. I mean, I think it's a very difficult one to answer because I think it's a brave person uh, who, having lived through the politics of 29, would say anything about the politics of 2019 was inevitable. But given where we were in October 2019, it's really hard to see how we would have got anything other than, than one of two outcomes. One was that the withdrawal agreement that Johnson already had a second reading majority for would pass into law. The other was that we would get an election. That, to me, I think is the is the bolder in the path of anybody who wants to argue that an election could have been averted. For the Liberal Democrats, stopping that deal passing into law was, was sine qua non by that point. And with that many Labour MPs already backing it, it was going to happen. So the only, the only thing that they could do was shake the snow globe. And for the SNP, I think, Think it was slightly different. They also very strongly objected to this withdrawal agreement, but they also had the salmon trial coming up yeah. on the calendar. So they really didn't have a strong incentive to spin things out very long. So I think one can make a case for it could have ended up happening in January. And of course, a January election, given what happened after, might have been felt very different. But I don't think it's, it's clear how you could have got, say, another year of that parliament. Uh, really hard to see how that can happen. And if it did happen, then Brexit would have gotten done anyway. Lots of people a lot younger than me bang on about the role of data and all that sort of newfangled stuff in elections. And I'm just sort of curious, how, how important was this? Was there a massive difference between the sort of online campaigns of the two parties? Did it make a difference? And what does it consist of in layman's terms? I mean, I can feel this if you want, Paula, because Will and I did some stuff on the online campaigning. And yeah. I did, did some interviews on that one. I mean, bo both parties do an awful lot of campaigning online now. And it's a little bit easier to keep track of it because, you know, Facebook, for example, archive all the adverts and stuff like that. The, the truth is we didn't, I, I will confess, we probably didn't give this the coverage that we hoped we would have time to give it. But we do know about the high level strategy on this rather than exactly like, you know, in quantitative terms, what the adverts look like and everything like that. Here you can see the two parties parties organizational differences really come into the fore so the conservatives basically handed a lot of this stuff over uh, to people like top and Gerin and gave them quite a lot of autonomy to do stuff that they felt would work and you know to experiment and uh, try lots of different things and so on and it seemed to go very well in labor you had two parallel online campaigns going on simultaneously that did not talk to each other okay. uh, you had uh, the the corbyn social media that was run out of lotto uh, and it was all around Jeremy's social media pages and, and brands. And you had the official Labour campaign, which had most of the money uh, run out of Southside. And they didn't campaign in the same way. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't share ideas virtually at all. So, and, and you can see that in the, the kind of content they were producing. It's, it's very, very different. What voters made of that is hard to say. But one complaint afterwards was that the, the Corbyn social media stuff looks very effective in terms of the number of times people retweet it and like it. And so on. But most of it is circulating amongst a group of true believers who were never going to do anything but vote Labour anyway. So its effectiveness might not be as impressive as its reach suggests that it is. Now, one of the one of the claims from the book that has already sort of received quite a lot of prominence, I noticed that Guido Fawkes' website was talking about it yesterday. I noticed also that the Guido Fawkes website referred to it as John Curtis's book, which I thought was a nice touch. <laughs> but uh, it's this idea that had the Brexit party not stood, then Boris Johnson might be sitting atop a majority of 130 rather than 80. Do you, is, is, is that really the case? That yeah. sounds massive. If, I mean, if you just look at a very simple analysis of the data and the kinds of places where the Brexit party got large shares of the vote, if you put 
two thirds even of that vote into the Conservative column, you can see that they take a whole swathe of seats. I mean, the red wall could have gone completely. You know, there are there are still a few bricks remaining, but had the Brexit party stood down everywhere, it's likely the whole lot would have gone. Could have been much more, more dramatic, a much bigger mountain, as Labour keep like like to refer to the mountain they have to climb. Um, it could have been a much, much bigger mountain. And John John Curtis and Steve Fisher and Patrick English were very careful about how they addressed this question. I mean, you can never truly know what people would have done with a different ballot paper in front of them. But what they did do was look at how Brexit party supporters in those seats rated the other parties uh, mm. rated the other leaders all this kind of thing and what emerges very consistently and probably not a massive surprise these voters were much more closely aligned to the conservative party to them than to the Labour Party, much more likely to like Johnson, dislike Corbyn. They were less keen on the Conservatives than people actually voted Conservatives. Also not surprising, which is why you would, they wouldn't have, the Tories wouldn't have got all of that vote. But it's a very reasonable assumption that they would have got a substantial chunk of that vote, that that would have been enough to tip a number of seats over the edge, including some pretty high profile people like Ed Miliband, Yvette mm. Weeper would potentially, John Trickett would potentially have been out of jobs, Ian Lavery, the Labour Party chair, another one. And of course, this is a massive headache for Labour in the next election. Because if we assume that the Brexit Party polls like Reform UK is now polling, which is like considerably lower, then there's a good chance that Labour, even if there's a national swing in its favour, could find itself underwater in a number of these seats due to votes going the other way, as, as happened in the Hartlepool by-election. Doesn't that rather assume that the Brexit divide remains as live as as important in the next election as it was in the last one it assumes that the the only reason people voted for the brexit party was about brexit and it might seem ridiculous to think that people might vote for the brexit party for reasons other than brexit given their name but actually it's also an expression of that disaffection from labor in those areas that that we've seen over a long period going back to going back to mm. at least 2010 um so i don't think it's necessarily you can you can say those votes were just about brexit and with brexit done they will they will move backwards at all so I think it's a much it, it's part of the story of, of, of Brexit that, that Rob's written about in Brexit land that this has been a long-term process and people aren't just going to flip back and I think that's why Hartlepool had such a profound effect I mean sending Labour into kind of a tailspin the morning afterwards <laughs> because waving Brexit land around everyone <laughs> really good. Be, because a lot of people in the party thought it was either Brexit or Corbyn and with both those things done things would flip back and that was a really clear signal that it wasn't that simple. Listen we'll be back in just a couple of minutes after this short advert break. Hello there I'm Katie Hayward Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting but seeing as you're here I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter which is now weekly you can keep up to speed by going to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. All right, I've got to ask you this question because I mean, I'm genuinely curious, but what was the thing you discovered in doing the work for this book that most surprised you? I answered this question with my Charlie in the week. And exactly. I think the most surprising thing in, in the analysis is that on average, Boris Johnson was less popular among voters than Theresa May had been in 2017, because he does have this, at least the, the, the kind of narrative from 2019 was that he was a very, very popular leader. But actually, he was a very, very polarising leader, so that some of the popularity amongst some groups is, is set off by 
real unpopularity amongst other groups. And at the same time, when we look at the 2019 election, Corbyn's ratings had had taken such a tumble that there was still a gulf between the two of them. But actually, if you look at the the pure average amongst the electorate, Theresa May was more popular in 2017 than Boris Johnson was in 2019. Oh, wow. I think the thing that I changed my view on most from doing the book is the utter impossibility of Labour's position on Brexit. I think, like many people viewing it from the outside, I was pretty critical of Corbyn's sort of inconsistency on this. But what became really clear to me from from researching it and talking to all the people involved is it was just an impossible catch-22 Gordian knot, that there was no credible, viable option that didn't come with massive political risks, either internal risks in terms of the very complicated and fractured Labour coalition or external risks in terms of putting a very significant chunk of the Labour electoral coalition at at risk. There was no good option at all for the Labour Party. I think I came out of it a lot more sympathetic for the party and its leadership on that issue than I went in. But just wonder about this, sort of going a bit Pre, further back, sort of pre-election, so this is sort of out of the remit of the book a little bit, but with the gift of hindsight, wouldn't it have been a game changer if Labour had backed the May deal? Well, this is an example of exactly the kind of thing where when you look closer, um, you know, the, the picture becomes more complicated. So I think there are a lot of people in Labour who think that with, uh, with retrospect, and many who thought it at the time too. But the big problem with it was there was never an opportune point to do it where it couldn't have caused major problems. Uh, they couldn't have done it before the, the first vote in January. But by the time you get into the second and third vote, Change UK have just launched and there is a major anxiety in parts of the Labour leadership that, that they could be looking at SDP Mark II, that mm. if they grow in behind the May deal, they will split the party, they'll lose 100 MPs, 50 MPs, whatever it might be, and it, and, and it, it could be the end of... Of, of Corbyn as an opposition leader. Then you get to, you know, the um, cross-party negotiations. And by that point, it's the problem that McDonald identified as negotiating with the firm that's going into liquidation. By that point, May's authority is so shot that there's no there's no real trust there that, that any cross-party deal that's agreed will, will be implemented in any meaningful way because May will just be replaced by someone who bins it all off. So the problem is, while all the way through that period from probably October 2018 through to May's departure, there's a pretty convincing argument to be made in theory that Labour should find a way to get the votes onto the, that you know, to get those votes into the column that gets the deal over the line because it takes the issue away from them. There's never a point where it makes strategic sense to back it from the leadership's perspective. And there's never a mechanism. That's the alternative. Oh, what if we just go quiet and let some of these Labour leave MPs to just back it and deny that it was anything to do with us? There's never a point where that, there's no mechanism to make that happen. And so, you know, it's it's a kind of coordination failure. And there you could say, well, that is a failure of leadership. They should have found a way. And maybe they should, but it was, I think the problem was very difficult in terms of there was, and also, as Phil says, with regards to the calling of the election, you've got to remember, and you'll remember, Anna, how chaotic this period mm. was. The, the, the time for the, 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 the calm, strategic reflection, here's where we need to get to, and here's the steps we're taking, it never came. Yeah, it's amazing, the sort of prolonged sense of panic for months on end. Gives me the shivers thinking back to it, actually. It's interesting that the the chapter on uh, polling has the subtitle, Redemption. How accurate were the polls? And are we now to think 
that they've got their act together and they're going to continue being accurate in the future? Well, they were pretty good, is the answer. But I think there are structural issues that we've seen in polling in the US, for example, that also exist in the UK. And there are always, I think, some dangers there for pollsters that things could start to change in ways in ways that they don't anticipate. For example, levels of trust start to wane amongst certain groups who then don't respond to the polls. I think in the next election, we're quite likely to see some differential turnout amongst different groups, which mm -hmm. might affect the accuracy of the polling. Um, so I think in 2019, the polling was pretty good, but I don't think the pollsters can be entirely complacent about some of the things that are changing under the surface that might affect late, you know, future elections. This book, this series is a big deal and it's got a sort of long and venerable history. Did you, do you find that participants were happy to talk to you about it? Was, was access easy because this is the book you were doing? I think access was, was relatively easy, but I think that's a combination perhaps of the book series and, and the status of the book series. Perhaps also the fact that during the period we were doing a lot of the interviews, everybody was at home. So, so I think mm. some of the conversations were a lot longer than they might otherwise have been because yeah. people were just in their own home, they were comfortable, right. they didn't have a lot else to do. I also think for some for some people, and, and Rob did far more interviews than I did, so he might have a different take on this, but for some people it felt a little bit like a form of therapy. So you're talking about that chaos of the of mm. the year beforehand and actually just a chance to kind of talk through it and make some sense of it looking backwards I think was probably quite welcome to a lot of people. Well it's interesting you say that because a number of people said to us in our Brexit archive interviews afterwards that that was like a therapy session I'm glad to get that off my chest and some of them didn't even edit the transcripts afterwards but uh, Rob. Well, I mean the same observation actually and, and I, I mentioned this to Phil Cowley who was one of the lead authors on the, the three books prior to ours and he said that that's that's his experience across all those elections which were a bit less contentious than the recent one i think the access was easier and the quality of the interviews was better because it is unusual for people particularly in very polarized politics to have an opportunity to speak to someone who really is going to be an honest broker and just wants to understand what happened and and why and and, and get those opinions down and that does make it a bit like a therapy session with a neutral therapist i found that people were very eager to speak on those terms Certainly, I was surprised at that. That may partly be the reputation of the book, but I may, I think it also may be, as you've seen with your Brexit archive, that a lot of people, and we have an advantage over you in this, in that, that our interviews are always treated as uh, anonymous. No one is, is, mm. is quoted with their name attached unless they really want to be. People kind of want to get their version of history down and to be presented with someone who, thanks to the reputation of the books, you think, well, they will, they will take doing that job seriously. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very keen on it and they seem to find it quite uh, cathartic uh, very often. I mean, we've seen this sort of growth industry in sort of in sort of political books by journalists that look in some detail at either recent events a la Shipman or a particular political party a la Maguire and Pogram. What does an academic book like yours or a book done by academics like this one bring to the table that those don't? I think, first of all, that kind of honest broker that that Rob just described um, this series of books has that reputation so in, in that sense people I hope know that, that, that there aren't axes to grind here it's an account of of the election as we understood it I think there's also the breadth of the study so it covers you know everything it isn't just focusing on a particular set of seats or just focusing on one party's perception of it so I think it it offers that and it also I think offers 
the experience much more much more from my co-authors than than from myself but that breadth of experience of having studied elections for a really long time and being able to put them into that academic context of, of, of understanding and studying elections, which it's, it's not the journalist's job to do that. It's our job, though, to, to, to be aware of the fact that this election fits in alongside all other elections. It fits in alongside European elections, US elections. So although we don't write about those, we nonetheless have that as a context that we, through which we are viewing the, the material. I mean, the way I think about the distinction is the question that books like the Pogrand and Maguire book, which is an excellent book, try to answer the journalistic accounts is what was it like? What was it like to be in the room? How did it pan out? You know, so they're very keen on getting the sort of detailed, accurate, blow by blow element to it. Whereas the question books like ours try to answer is what does it mean? What were the perceived objectives? Why did they fail or succeed? Where does this fit in the broader sweep of electoral history, political history in this country? Um, so, you know, that's why we include all of this historical narrative with interviews with elites, but also contextualize it in terms of all these other, you know, gears in the great electoral machine. The, the press, public opinion, the, the election results themselves, so that the reader can have a sense of, well, this is what this election meant. This is what this election meant on its own terms and what mm. it meant for the country, what was on voters' minds, how they decided. So it's a question of, it, it, it's analysis rather than narrative. And I think both have their place. Now, I mean, I haven't read the book as a whole yet, but based on the series to date and based on my familiarity with the work that you two have done over the years, I can say with enormous confidence that it's going to be the must read for people who want to understand not just the election, but the state of British politics now. I should also say for those who are interested that we're doing a launch event for the book on some date in November that I can't remember. That won't surprise anyone. 24th, thank you very much, which I believe we are streaming and we'll cut this bit of the podcast if we're not streaming it. For those who want to hear a bit more about the book, then tune into that. But if there's one recommendation I'll leave you with is that you should buy this thing and read it because it will teach you an awful lot about British politics. But for the moment, to both of you, I thought that was really, really fascinating. It's really nice to see you both as always. And thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you. My pleasure.